So today, let me just give you a little bit of a heads up. I feel really off for a lot of reasons, <clears throat> and it doesn't help that I'm going to preach a, a sermon this morning where I feel like the effect of it is, is I'm going to open up a can of worms, all right, and I'm just going to let the worms go free and, and never put them back in the can, and so um, that'll be your task. I'm going to speak in sweeping generalities that might uh, cause us to come to all kinds of assumptions that I don't intend you to come to. So just be careful with what I talk about this morning. And my intent, moms and dads for that matter, and humans, everybody for that matter, is to encourage and to, and to lift up how God is, has made you and designed you. My, my title is The Dignity and Divinity of Womanhood. Um, we could put dignity, divinity, and design of womanhood. Then we have all these Ds together. So um, before, I, before I jump in, let me, um, let me pray, and then we will make the best of this. Lord, I just pray that you be with me. You have created things in a wonderful way. Your word even tells us that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, and I believe that the details of that are far beyond what we can ever imagine. And so I pray that you would be with me. Did you be with my words? Did you help anything that I say that's not helpful to just, um, just, just kind of wash away and help the things that are helpful in building up and encouraging and challenging and transforming? I, help, I pray those things would take root. Be with people's ears, help them to hear what you want them to hear, and, um, and bless this time. Let it not just be words, but let it be something that we can use in our lives. I pray this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I'm going to speak on two sides of the same coin, so it's going to sound a little bit strange at times. So I, I, I just um, ask you, if things get real confusing, feel free to come, come up and talk to me later in the week and say, what did you mean by that, or what were you trying to say? But before I get into the details of this title, The Dignity and Divinity of Womanhood, I need to clarify who I am and where I come from. I'm going to use some more academic words, and I'll try to unpack those a little bit. First, I want to say that I am what I would call a complementarian. That is, I do not adhere to the egalitarian concepts that equality of men and women negate the differences of men and women. So there's, there's, two, there's two sides to this coin in theology that talks about men and women and why God made us that way and what, what that's for. And there's one side that says, all is equal, and it just has to do with what someone's strengths and, 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 and abilities are. And there's another side that said, no, God made us specifically for a specific reason. There's specific ways in which men are supposed to reflect God, and there's specific ways in which women are supposed to reflect God. I'm, I'm one on the side of complementarian. Now, those are two extreme views on this topic. So unless you talk to me, you probably won't find out in what category I am, I mean, what, um, to what degree I am. But let me give you some of the reasons why I would consider myself a complementarian. First, God created the genders. I mean, you ever think of that? I mean, God could have done anything. He, he could have made us all one sex. You know, if he didn't have to make us man and woman, he could have made us however he wanted to. But in his mind, he wanted to make us man and woman. And he did this and called it good prior to sin entering the picture, prior to the fall. Also, when you look at the Genesis account, you notice that the way that God approaches and handles Adam and Eve, especially Adam in Genesis 3, strongly suggests 
the original intention of unique roles and responsibilities given to the different genders. Secondly, Paul uses pre-fall Genesis verses and realities as a part of his argument for gender roles in marriage and family. So when you're talking about Ephesians 5 and Paul's going through there and he's talking about how children are supposed to approach their parents and how wives and husbands are supposed to interact and how everybody's supposed to interact with one another, then all of a sudden Paul jumps to this verse in Genesis 2 and references, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So Paul uses a pre-fall, a pre-sin coming into the picture verse to Put his, to put on his argument for specific roles for men and women, specifically in the marriage relationship. Third, Paul points to the man and woman relationship as that which is a kind of metaphor for Christ in the church relationship. Remember, in the same passage in Genesis 5, he talks about uh, men and women and all this, and then he says, but I'm talking about Christ the church. So there's a, there's a metaphor that, that, that this pointing is looking at and it's, it's a reality that is redeemed from sin. It's a metaphor that points to future when sin is no longer an issue. Now, it's true that Paul states that his main point is in regard to Christ and the church, but in my mind, that only strengthens the significance of marriage as a metaphor for Christ and the church. It does not negate it. Listen to what he says in verse 32 of chapter 5 of Ephesians. Paul writes, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However... Let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So, she, so, so Paul uses this, this post-sin reality as an argument toward the roles that he's, that he's placing on men and women, especially in marriage. Fourth, Paul states explicitly in 1 Corinthians 11 that the order of creation is of significance to the roles that genders play. Now, this is a really tricky passage. In, Genesis, in, in 1 Corinthians 11. But verses 8, 9, 11, and 12 are pretty clear on this aspect from Paul's point. So let me just read those. Paul writes, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man... So man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. So, though sin distorts and damages our view and our acting out of the unique roles of men and women, it is not the roles themselves that are wrong. The roles are beautifully designed by God. I want to look at another verse on this when we're talking about womanhood and manhood. In Genesis 1.27, many of you are probably fully aware of this verse. Some of you might have read it and are aware of the wording there, but never really thought about it. And some others might not be aware of it at all. So let's, let's, let me read it and look at this. In Genesis 1, verse 27, So God created man. And just so you know, that, that, that word there in the Hebrew is a plural word that's speaking more to mankind, not a gender. But So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And so when I think about that, and I think about everything that's packed into that little phrase there, I think neither man nor woman display the image of God. Rather, man and woman display the image of God. There's something about 
the image of God that requires both the male and female, according to verse 27. Now, it's true that God inspired his word with masculine pronouns and descriptions for his title. He, his, him, father. And there's good reason for this, but that's another argument, another topic for another day. But it has nothing to do with gender superiority or inequality. Rather, it has to do with gender roles and complementarity. There's something about masculinity that cannot fully express God. Likewise, there's something about femininity that cannot fully express God. We are designed to be incomplete if we're alone. Another, another verse from Genesis 2, verse 18 Then the Lord said, it is not good that man should be left alone. There's something about that verse that's always struck struck me as odd. I mean, think about this. God's created everything. He's on the sixth day now. And on the sixth day, sin has not come into the picture yet, right? The serpent has not deceived yet. Sin has not entered creation. And God's looking at creation, and he says what? It's not good. Isn't that odd? It's odd. Sin has not come yet, and yet God says it's not good. And what is not good about that? Humanity as a single gender is not good. Therefore, there must be gender distinctions that accomplish God's purposes better than gender neutrality. It's not good for man to be alone. And so he makes woman. So this is, so this is huge to me, because... Because since we refer to God as he, and we should, it's in, the, the, the scriptures are inspired that way, so don't hear me wrong. But because we, we, we refer to God as he or him and father, I think sometimes that, that subtly or subconsciously starts to make us think like, well, men are godlike and women are other. But that's not what Genesis 127 is saying at all. It's saying man alone is not good. And without woman, the image of God is not fully communicated. So there's as much divinity in the nature of woman as there is divinity in the nature of man. This is important for us to take hold of as we think about how we conduct ourselves and how we live our lives, especially as women and moms and dads and fathers. I'm going to try and, and, and look at how women are intended to reflect God in two ways. Uh, before I tell you this two ways, let me clarify this. There's a lot of details on how this works out. How do different roles and responsibilities of men and women, how does that work out? That's the worms that I'm not putting back into the can, okay? I mean, that, that, would get, that would become a pretty hairy conversation. A good conversation that I'd love to have, not from this perspective. But, um, but that's the part I'm not going to put back in the can. I will say this in general, though. I think that how those roles play themselves out might vary from generation to generation throughout time, might vary from, from culture to culture. How do the gender roles play themselves out in a, a Central African context? How do they play themselves out in an Asian context in, in, in China? How do they play themselves out? You, you see what I mean? It, it, how it plays itself out might vary from place to place. That they play themselves out is biblical. Okay, so that's the point I'm making. You work out, you go find those worms, and you figure out how that works in your culture, in your context, as God has designed you. But what I'm going to point to right here is try and make an argument that women are intended to reflect God. And I'm going to do that by looking at some of the maternal descriptions of God 
and by looking at a name that God uses to refer to himself in the Old Testament. So first, let me speak to maternal divinity. Now, I know when I say that, that probably sounds ew, a little bit weird, but I hope I'm making a case of where I'm coming from so that you don't get uncomfortable. Unless it's a good discomfort, in that case, get uncomfortable. God has no gender, yet he chooses to, here's another academic word, he chooses to anthropomorphize his pronouns. That is, God takes human, sta- human language and puts them on things that aren't human, puts it on himself. God's not human, he created humanity. God has no gender, but he uses he, him, and those types of things to talk about himself. The vast majority of references to God in the Bible use the, the masculine gender and never uses feminine pronouns. And I, there's several thoughts on why God may have done this. I'll give you a few, a few of my own here. This first one I kind of gathered from reading some of C.S. Lewis' thoughts on it. He said, though, there, though many goddesses and priestesses have been worshipped and admired throughout history, God may be avoiding the, notion, avoiding the notion that creation was birthed, rather creation was created. Another thought on why he might use the masculine gender um, pronouns for himself is the Hebrew word Adam refers both to a proper name and a general word for mankind, for humanity. So the masculine nature of God's identity need not be a gender issue. Thirdly, the strongest reason for why God chose to use exclusively masculine pronouns and a majority of masculine descriptions probably speaks more to his position of authority when being addressed and when addressing his children. And in this case, that also means that the gender roles of men and women are distinct, important, and intentional especially as they communicate who God is to the world. Regardless of the reason God uses masculine pronouns, if we believe that the Bible is inspired and infallible, we are not in the place to dispute this. Christians think, I'm quoting C.S. Lewis now, Christians think that God himself has taught us how to speak to him. To To say that it does not matter is to say either that all masculine imagery is not inspired, is merely human in origin, or else that, though inspired, it is quite arbitrary and unessential. And C.S. Lewis adds, and this is surely intolerable. That's how God inspired it. There must, must be a reason for that. Yet, with that said, God's intent in displaying his image in mankind is not limited to the uniquely masculine characteristics alone, but also to the feminine qualities designed to women. So you see, I'm jumping on both sides of this coin quite a bit. So I'm praying that God helps you to hear this correctly and that I don't say it ridiculously if I haven't already. Consider some of the following references to God. I'm just going to go through a few here that that, that are fascinating to me. Deuteronomy 32:18. God is rebuking Israel. Israel had been going through the wandering. He wanted to take them to the promised land. They grumbled, and, and they lived in unbelief and, and disobedience, and therefore they had to wander for 40 years. And in the midst of this, toward the end of this, God rebukes them, and he uses this imagery when he rebukes Israel. He says, You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. So he uses feminine qualities there to describe his action in in their in their lives job 38 god is chastising job and he says has the has the rain a father or who has begotten the the drops of dew from whose womb did the ice come from and who has given birth to the frost of heaven 
again. One of my favorites is in Matthew 23 when Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem. Scripture says he's crying, and as he, sp- and as he approaches Jerusalem, he says something. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing? Now, now what do we do with that kind of imagery? What do we do with those kinds of similes and metaphors? Is God trying to communicate to us, and he's going, man, if I could come up with a good example, I just got to think of something really, really clever, right? That's what he's doing. He says, oh, it's like chickens. That's right. I'm going to use that. No, it's, it's like the birthing process. I'm going to use that. No, I got to think of a better one. Don't forget that the foreknowledge of God's thought and creation before time it's part of God's design for all creation. God, God created with foreknowledge, not as a reaction. Does that make sense? And so it's more likely, according to the character of God, that when he makes the world a certain way, he makes the world a certain way for a certain reason. He's not scratching his head going, hmm, how do I communicate to the... the I'll use marriage. Marriage is a good one. I'll use that. No, it's the opposite. He created marriage so that marriage would communicate something about him. He created men and women so that men and women would say something about him. He created some of these biological processes so that they would say something about him. He's not scrounging for metaphors. He created metaphors. In 1 Corinthians 2, 7, God's wisdom is forethought. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Salvation and your gifting was a forethought. God who saved us, this is 2 Timothy 1.9, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Or... Titus 1-2, your eternal life was thought out in hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised when? Before the ages began. Before sin came into the picture, God had already thought through eternal life. Had already thought through your salvation. Had already thought through your, your gifting. This is not a reaction or an afterthought. Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection were thought out in 1 Peter 1-19. But with the precious blood of Christ... Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. This is stuff God thought about before he said, let there be light. Or your names were recorded, according to Revelation 13, verse 8. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, speaking about the beast in Revelation. All on earth, all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. God is not reacting. God is not screwing around trying to things, make things right. He designed everything for a reason. Now, I just kind of got off on the tangent on God's forethought. But that means when we come to talking about womanhood, that womanhood was not a reaction. 
It was not a, ooh, I've got to fix this. It was a design. There's something special about that. Therefore, all of creation was part of God's plan and meant to communicate something about God. And this includes the marriage relationship as well as the unique gender roles. That means that when God uses feminine descriptions of his own character, it is not because God discovered a curious similarity. Rather, it is because God made women with this unique ability to image God in a way that no man can. That's pretty special, I think. For today's purpose, I'm focusing specifically on what God is telling us about himself in the creation of woman. There's a name that God uses for himself. I used to teach through the names of God. Not all of them, because there's, there's too many. I would, I would pick anywhere between 10 or 14, and I used to teach them to my students. And one of the names that was fairly complicated to, to communicate, but it's also a very popular name, was El Shaddai. Got, a lot of you have heard of that name before, El Shaddai. There's a song back in the 80s called El Shaddai. And, um, and it's translated God Almighty. So in most of your Bibles, depending on your translation, but most translations, when you see that phrase in the Old Testament, God Almighty, you can know that that's, that's El Shaddai. That's the name, a specific name, or I like to call them descriptive titles that God uses for himself. Now, I want to I quickly just kind of tear through this name and give you a feel of what I think this name is trying to communicate. Because I think God Almighty, and a lot, of, a lot of Jewish scholars agree, that it's not the best, most accurate translation, Almighty. I guess there's a way in which you can think of Almighty that it will work. But the word El is an abbreviated form of Elohim, which is a generic word for God. It's a plural word, too. That's another discussion. It carries with it the sense of God's might and significance and power. And so if that's what El means, and Shaddai, they're translating Almighty, then you end up with this rendering of Mighty God Almighty, which is kind of redundant if you think about it. Now, there's debate on what Shaddai is referring to, and I'll give you a couple of the theories there and try and unfold what I think is going on there. The one, which I think is the least likely, is from the Hebrew word Shaddad, they think that Shaddai is a derivative of Shaddad, which is the Hebrew word for destroyer or consumer. But to use that as the meaning behind Shaddai is, is to neglect the tail end, the D-A-I, the die part, which I think is very significant. In fact, the die part is a Hebrew word for enough. It's used in the Passover song, it would have been enough. We've sung that before, right? Remember every once in a while we do this quick upbeat things? Come let us sing. Let us rejoice. You know, it would have been enough. If that's die, it would have been die. That's that's the die part of El Shaddai. And so, in that sense, we have a God who's sufficient, who's fully enough. Now, Shaddaim, that that word, the, the beginning part of Shaddai, is a Hebrew word for unique body parts of a woman, often used in passages to indicate sufficiency and nourishment. Some suggest that the name could be a compound word, a contraction of Shah and Dai, meaning El, El, mighty God, Shaddai, who is completely sufficient. And so you have this idea where God is using a name, which I think is playing on some of these feminine qualities, of a God who is a nurturer, who is sufficient, who is a provider. Actually, I think Shaddai better com- communicates the provisions of God than Jireh, which is, has more to do with the foreknowledge of God. 
but we're not teaching names of God. Let me just stick with this, this womanhood idea. And so even the name El Shaddai, I think, plays on some of those, those feminine qualities that God intends to display in his creation, specifically through the creation of women. If you look at the context of where El Shaddai um, shows up, it's often, it's often used in the context of, of fertility or multiplying. For instance, where it first shows up is in Genesis 17.1. Um, we read, um, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make a covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Now, the context of Genesis 17 got to remember that Abraham comes onto the scene in the later part of Genesis 11, and he's not given any grand task except to leave the security of his home. And so what's he do? He leaves the security of his home. He digs some wells. Digs a lot of wells. He liked to dig wells. Um, he um, tries to stay out of trouble and occasionally gets a visit from God, and each of these visits carry a similar message. Abraham will have children, many children. But you guys know the story. Abraham and Sarah are not able to have children, so they come up with a couple creative ways to determine how his promised blessing will be passed down to following generations. So in Genesis 17, this is like 30 years after, about 30 years after, after Abraham leaves his home, he still doesn't have any kids, and God comes to Abraham and reminds him, I am El Shaddai. And he says that Abraham's ideas are bad ideas. <laughs> And that God will see to it that he will have a child from his and Sarah's own bodies. It's beautiful. This descriptive title for God is used 48 times in the Old Testament. But let me highlight a few of these. I'm just going to stick to Genesis for simplicity. It shows up quite a bit in Job also. We already looked at Genesis 17.1. But in Genesis 28.3, Isaac is blessing Jacob. And I'm not going to read the English just so you can see how El Shaddai is. When, when I'm reading, I'm going to say El Shaddai instead of God Almighty so you can hear how that works. But Isaac says, El Shaddai bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. Then later, God directly blesses Jacob. And he says, And God said to him, I am El Shaddai. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. And then finally here in Genesis 48, I'm going to look at verses 3 and 4 and then one more in 49, 25. When Jacob is blessing his sons and grandsons, he uses these descriptions. And Jacob said to Joseph, El Shaddai appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you. For an everlasting possession. And then in verse 25, by the God of your Father who will help you, by the Shaddai who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. In all of these occurrences of El Shaddai, we can see in the context that the theme of, the theme of rep- reproduction and multiplication, God is trying to tell us something about who he is. And at times, often, he uses some of these feminine qualities. God's description would be incomplete without the creation of women. If there's something about God's image that is displayed in the creation of genders, male and female, 
I'm looking to see what this is. As a man, I want to display God faithfully in all the ways that I am able. And yet there are unique ways for men to display God's image and unique ways for women to display God's image. How does womanhood reflect God? I don't have time to defend which characteristics are highlighted. That's the worms again that I just opened up, and you guys deal with that and argue about that. I'm just going to say it's there. But I'm going to quote Pastor Eric Noss, and he says, However, we must never make the mistake of claiming that God and his divinity is intrinsically male. The Bible is clear that God is spirit, and as such, he is not gendered. When we call him father, we do not mean that he is male like human fathers are. Rather, we mean that he, he relates to us like a human father does. He provides for us, protects, leads, and even disciplines us like the best human fathers do, only better. Likewise, when the Bible speaks of God as a husband, it does not claim that God is male, but that God jealously guards his relationship with his people like a good husband loves and protects his wife. Consider this, it is only when both man and woman are created in Genesis 1 that God is fully imaged. Women are specifically designed with heightened capacity for care and relational tenderness. And who would ever criticize a mother's child in front of her? They'd better be ready for mama's wrath. Likewise, when we think of God's love for those who are reconciled to him in Jesus, we not only think of a strong, productive, and wise father, but we can also bask in his tender, nurturing, comforting care seen most beautifully in a mother's love for her child. What a dynamic God we worship. End quote. So it seems that part of what is incomplete in man's ability to image God is his lack of instinct toward tenderness, nurturing, and comforting. Now, let me clarify. I'm not suggesting that these traits are exclusive to men and women. In fact, we've all seen women who have a very heightened instinct to protect and discipline, or men who have an excellent ability to gently comfort. However, God has both created men and women physically, emotionally, and spiritually with a general bent towards specific traits. In addition, God has given unique and specific roles and responsibilities to men and women. Let me try to illustrate quickly. In my marriage, damn, my, my wife's here, so I, I got to be real careful. It was easier to do this first service. <laughs> In my marriage, many of the gender roles and responsibilities seem to, on the surface to be flipped at times. I tend to be more lighthearted and playful person in the family, or maybe just immature and adolescent, we could say that. And Kristen tends to be the more serious taskmaster. At least that's how I see it. <laughs> However, the older I get, when the rubber meets the road, the more I learn to trust Christ, the more I see us naturally display the gender roles and responsibilities that God communicates in Scripture. For instance, years ago when we were on our missions and, and we were living kind of a nomadic life, I was really stressed emotionally, really emotionally stressed over the ability for me to provide for my family. Kristen was not so stressed about those things. And I had never really wrestled with those things prior to that. It made me wonder, maybe God designed me that way? Maybe God wants me to step up and take responsibility in those areas? Likewise, Kristen seems to have a much more natural bent toward the well-being and health of my family. She's the one that's always 
telling me that I need to eat better and go to the doctor, and she just started making some suggestions about this week. But, um, <laughs> but she, she, she has a bent toward that, a passion toward that. And I don't think it's just her personality. I think maybe God designed her that way because it's good for me. It's good for us. And if we drop the ball on either of our roles, the whole thing seems to fall apart. This became even more evident after Samuel was born. And this, this is something I don't say lightly. There, there are many things that Kristen saw as a mom that I was unable to see. You guys who have been through parenting, you probably, I think we've all been there. You know, where let's just go with this side of it. The mom sees something. And the, and the husband kind of has takes this, um, what's the big deal, right? Been, anybody, anyone been there? Or is this a, another thing where I'm all by myself up here? I'm the only one that's been there. You know, and the mom's pleading. They're saying, there's something wrong. And no, you're, you're overreacting. You're making a big deal out of it. You know, well, well, Kristen saw things in Samuel when he was like two years old. And I, and I remember thinking, yeah, he's going to grow up. It probably wasn't until Samuel's five that I started taking ownership and saying, you know what? Maybe I should have just trusted a mother's instinct. Maybe God designed her that way because she can see that stuff better than I can. Maybe it's not just me being dumb. Maybe it's me having a different role. You know, and as a good husband, I should have trusted her with her role and not try to assume hers. And likewise. So it seems that God has a design for designed her for this very thing. Consider some more of these amazing statements by God, about God, that highlight the more feminine qualities of God. Now, when I say a, a, a phrase like that, it's very loaded, and I don't want you to jump to conclusions, so I'm trying to uh, unfold this carefully. I'm not saying effeminate, all right? The feminine qualities of God. Um, effeminate seems to speak to, the, to a dainty, delicate, naive qualities. And those qualities are neither descriptive of God nor is it God's design for true womanhood. So that's not what I'm talking about. You'll see when I get to one of these descriptions that's exactly not what I'm talking about. But in Isaiah 66, verse 13, God is speaking about Jerusalem and the blessings that Jerusalem brings. And the context indicates that in this passage, Jerusalem is representative of God himself. For God credits acts of Jerusalem, things that only God can perform. So if you get a chance... You can read verses 7 through 14 to see how God describes Jerusalem. And they carry some very explicit imagery concerning these feminine qualities that God has designed into womanhood. But verse 13 is probably the safest and simplest and most direct description connected to God himself. And this is what God says in Isaiah 66, 13. He says, As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. God compares himself to a compassionate mother who cares for her child. Isaiah 49, verse 15, God is speaking gently to Israel about his undying compassion toward his children. He speaks assuming a universal principle concerning the design of women and compares himself to this. Here's a universal design. Can a woman forget her nursing child? Unlikely. That's an assumption that God speaks with there. That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb. And then he says, even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. He compares himself to the compassion of a mom who is nursing. I love this one in Isaiah 42, verse 14. 
God compares himself, his emotional intensity, because of the broken covenant with Israel to a woman in labor. I love this verse because it does two things. It talks about how deeply emotional God is. We, we often think about God, especially the Old Testament God, right? We often think of him as an as a, as a, um, unemotional moral force. You know, he's just up there saying moral statements. That was good. That was bad. That's sin. That's righteousness. That's, you know. But Scripture doesn't speak about that way. We, we have an emotional impact on God. We, we can behave in such a way that makes God j- leap for joy and rejoice. We can behave in such a way that can break his heart and bring him to his knees in tears. And I'm not saying this because I'm tr- trying to reach out to help you connect with God's emotions. These are images that God says of himself. In, verse, in chapter 42, verse 14 of, of, of Isaiah, I wish I could get the tone of how God may have said this. But he says, For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. But now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. Hear the intention, the, the, the intensity of God's emotions? I've never been in labor, I'll tell you that. But from what I've been told, <laughs> that's pretty intense. And God says, that's how you're breaking my heart. I will cry like that. And he compares himself to a woman in labor. Or Hosea 13.8, God compares himself to a mother bear who is robbed of her cubs. This is why I say it's not talking about the dainty delicateness God says, I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their chest, and there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. Moms ever feel like that? <laughs> so there's a place for that. There's a, there's a place for the almighty part of El Shaddai, right? There's a pla- it might talk about the nurturing, provision, multiplying, childbearing type aspects of God, but also the mom that's going to break down on you. <laughs> you mess with my kids. So those are, those are ways that God wants to, wants to declare and describe himself. In the big picture, the purpose of womanhood is the same as the purpose of manhood, and that is to display the glory of God in the person of Jesus. One male speaker addressing a women's conference put it this way. I think he was the only man in the room, too. Man, that's got to be a scary place. But anyway, but in his message, he says, This means that if you try to reduce womanhood to physical features and biological functions and then determine your role in the world merely on the basis of competencies, you don't just miss the point of womanhood, you diminish the glory of Christ in your own life. True womanhood is indispensable in God's purpose to display the fullness of the glory of his son. Your distinctive female personhood is not incidental. It exists because of its God's God-designed relationship to the central event of history, the death of the son of God, that is the groom dying for his bride. The problem here is not The problem here is the same problem we have with all of life, and that is sin. We fail in marriage because of sin. We fail in parenting because of sin. We fail in manhood because of sin. We fail in womanhood because of sin. So the solution for womanhood and motherhood is the same solution as in all of life. It's salvation. 
When Jesus died for our sins and sent the Holy Spirit to teach comfort and empower, he intended to redeem and restore marriage, parenting, manhood, and womanhood. Therefore, our ability to rise to the unique challenges in marriage, parenting, manhood, womanhood, fatherhood, and motherhood is only possible through our desperate reliance on and submission to Jesus Christ. I realize that I've possibly made some loaded assertions without giving many specifics. I know that. And I plead with women who are older in the faith to help women who are younger in the faith to work out these details, but work it out in a biblical way. Work it out not with culture, but work it out with verses and wrestle deeply with that and prayerfully with that. Wrestle with what it means to be a single woman, to be a wife, to be a mother, to be a grandmother. I know this. Women, single, married, and mothers, have a God-ordained role and responsibility to image God in, to their families and their communities in a way that men cannot do alone. Prayerfully rejoice in this and take this seriously. Remember, even before sin entered the picture, we men alone stood in a creation that was not good until you women came into the picture. This is something to rejoice for. Rejoice in your role in completing God's image and creation. So moms, what I'm saying, and women in general, is it's not just incidental that God created male and female. It's special. And you have a role that not only can build up next generations, and raise productive citizens, but it displays a character and a quality of God that men cannot do alone. It was not good that man could, should be alone. So he created woman. In Psalm 91, it's a beautiful psalm that merges both masculine and feminine qualities and give a more full picture of the God who created man in his own image, male and female. He created them. So I'm going to close with reading a few of these verses. Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of Shaddai. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him, because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Let me pray. Jesus, we just thank you for who you are. We thank you for your foreknowledge and your forethought. You didn't create us by accident. You don't scurry around looking for metaphors. You designed us on purpose, beautifully, fearfully, wonderfully. And that includes us as men and us as women. Lord, help us to, to, to fully declare your image in our families and in our communities and to the world. Help us to, to make you look great, make you shine. 
Teach us what it means in our workplaces and in our, in our marriages, in our parenting. I pray, pray especially that you would bless the moms today, that they might know that their job is a wonderful, beautiful job that you've designed them for. I pray that you would bless this day. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, before you go out, there are, what are they, packs? Flocks of cuties at the door <laughs> that have gifts for moms. Make sure you get one on the way out, amen? Go out and image God in your way.